0: Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Redlands campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. I uh, really love horticultural metaphors. I don't like saying those two words together, but I do love a good horticultural metaphor, and I'm a lot like Jesus in that way because that's what Jesus used horticultural metaphors a lot. But my confession is, as a horticulturalist, I make a really good preacher. I'm terrible when it comes. You know, I've stood on this stage and told you about my green thumbs and how they're getting greener. It's a lie. Forget it. I am terrible when it comes to the garden. I All of my attempts, as well-meaning as they have been, have come to just about... Nothing. I think I was able to make a very, very, very small pumpkin soup from the miniature uh, butternut pumpkins that, that grew in my garden this last attempt. But anyway, yeah, I think I've been really honest with you guys in saying all this stuff about my gardening. And I want to tell you that my last attempt started off uh, pretty well. I mean, this is, this is what my garden looked like uh, not long after I stuck. I thought they'd be clapping for this right now. Like, that's, yeah, thank you. And I, I took this photo and I sent it to my dad, who is a lot better than me. He knows a lot more than me. And uh, he said, yeah, looks good. He doesn't, he doesn't give a whole lot of affirmation, my dad. But um, let's wipe that from the, from the, from the audio. But anyway, uh, he was very impressed uh, with this garden. And so was I. I got very excited. I was, uh, I was very uh, optimistic in what I thought would be an abundant harvest. And my dream was to feed my family with never having to go to Skippy's Fruit Market again. How naive I was. I took a photo just this week, and this is what my garden looks like now. <laughs> and uh, for those of you who are going, yeah, but you've had the harvest. I'm like, yeah, I've had the harvest, but there was nothing from it. like that. And I just, in, in my anger, just ripped everything out. This is no good. And, and Brooks looking at it and going, well, now you've got this in the backyard. Like it's, it's, it's just not a good thing. I probably need to just get over it and start going back to that fine establishment up the road, Skippy's Fruit Market. You don't, you don't need to talk to me for very long to work out why I'm no good at horticulture. You don't need to know me very well. or You need to know me a little bit to figure out why I haven't got what it takes. And if you want an even more honest appraisal of my ability, talk to my dear wife. The first thing uh, when I start to make noises about starting a garden again, she says, well, have you done any research? I don't need to do any research. What are you doing? Research. Okay, I'll do one bit of research and I'll go off that tip and then that'll work for the whole time. No, no, you need to read a book or you need to get on a website or you need to join a club or something. I don't need any of that stuff. I know what I'm doing. Thank you. But then as as the garden continues to grow and and it gets to that stage where it flourishes and it looks like it's flourishing, what I don't anticipate is that starts to attract a whole lot of opposing forces uh, that want to stop it from growing, things like bugs and weeds and all this other stuff that likes the soil that I've created. And and what I find myself doing is I walk down there, I look at it, I I get really stressed and really anxious about what's happening in my garden, but just stand there and get stressed and anxious and don't do anything about it. The best thing I can do is just walk away and pretend I didn't see it and hope that I come back tomorrow and there's... Fruit and vegetables just magically (laughs) appearing. The other thing I do, and you can tell from that first photo, well, well, maybe you can't if you don't know anything about it, but I am a chronic overcrowder of my garden bed. When I I, just in my optimism of everything that I'm going to grow, I I plant everything so close together that it starts really well, but then uh, as it grows up, it start the plants start fighting and nothing really survives. I overcrowd the 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 seed bed like the 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 garden bed like uh, like nothing else, and and when plants are fighting for space, you don't get any fruit, you get really undernourished fruit. So despite all my early keenness and enthusiasm, there's a lot of things against me, a lot of my own self-doing that despite that great start, I tend to wane and tap out sometime in the not-too-distant future. I would say I've had anything but abundant success in backyard gardening. Maybe you can relate to this whole idea in a different way, like in a different context. You know, we're not that far from the start of the year. Maybe, you know, we don't like to talk about New Year's resolutions anymore, but maybe you started the year not with a resolution, but something you're going to change in 2024, which by the way is a resolution. But anyway, you didn't call it that because we don't do that anymore. But maybe you started the year with a new enthusiasm. I'm actually going to go to the gym now and not just get fit by direct debit. I'm, I'm, I'm starting a new year of uni and this time, this time I'm going to get ahead. I'm going to get ahead so I'm not cramming everything when the exams and the assignments are due, doing the night before thing. Maybe you started a new job this year and you said, this is not going to be like my old job. This is, this is it. I'm going to really work hard in this job. Maybe you made an investment and you're like really working hard in that investment to make it uh, really profitable. Maybe getting a little bit more on the emotional side, maybe you made a promise to a family member that this year things would be different. This year is the year that I will up my game when it comes to being a dad, to being a husband, to being a mother or a wife or a grandparent. There's a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of optimism to start with, but as the year wears on and the busyness of life overtakes us, our efforts become diminishing. Maybe you've thought about this in your spiritual life, as Jess talked about the 21 days of prayer. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in. Day one, awesome. Day two, brilliant. Day three, yeah, good. Day four, nah, I'm out. Particularly when it comes to fasting. But maybe on a broader scale in 2024, I'm gonna read through the Bible this year. I'm gonna get up early every morning and I'm gonna be praying, I'm gonna pray for my family, I'm gonna pray for my church. Initial enthusiasm that then tapers off keenness wanes and we find ourselves back where we started with nothing like the results that we were hoping for or expecting and in honest reflection we realize that the lack of advancement was due to our diminishing effort and attention the good things we hoped to multiply like my vegetables end up unsatisfying or underdeveloped today Jesus tells a parable, not today. We're reading a parable that he told. We're gonna read a parable today that Jesus told about an abundant harvest, about a harvest that was not like my harvest, but a harvest that multiplied 30, 60, 100 times over. And as we think about things that we want to multiply, and today's about multiplying the message of Jesus. I think if you're a passionate follower of Jesus, the best thing that Jesus could do The best thing, like if we were in a season of something, a season of people coming to faith in Jesus would be what we would want. Who's with me? Like think of the people you live, work and laugh with who don't yet know Jesus. Don't you want to see a season when people come person after person after person, kneeling at the foot of the cross and saying to Jesus, I am yours. Is that not the best thing that Jesus could do, a season of people coming to faith? Yes. Since Pentecost, we've wanted that. You know, since, since the believers were filled and Peter came up and preached the gospel and 3,000 people were added to their number in one single moment, that's like the high point of what God does in this New Testament era that we live in, seeing people come to faith in Jesus. So if we if we want that as a church, I could stand on this stage and I could say, we've got to share our faith. We're going to get fired up. We're going to get equipped up. We're got to learn how to do it. We're got to... We've got to pull up our socks and get on with this. Come on, church. We've got to share our faith in Jesus with the people who don't yet know Him. we go on an evangelism streak and we'd be going week after week talking about, okay, who have you shared your faith with? Who have you shared your faith with? Who have you shared your faith with? Who of your friends has prayed the prayer? Who are you bringing to church so they can come out the altar call? Who are you bringing to youth group? Who are you and, and get you fired up and fired up and fired up to work to see people come to faith in Jesus. Since Pentecost, this has been our heart. We would strategize. We'd have alpha courses coming out the wazoo. We'd have different ways that people can connect. And we'd go on this season of evangelism and pray. And, you know, churches have done that and God has honored that. But I reckon, I reckon Jesus suggests a different approach that is much more multiplying when he tells this parable unlike these other things we think about that show diminishing returns depending on our effort like my garden has diminishing returns because of no one else except me and any commitment you've made in 2024 if those if those returns start to diminish it's because of you and your effort you know this but unlike that this approach that Jesus suggests has less to do with our effort and more to do with what God has been telling us, Gateway Redlands, this year, more to do with relaxing and resting in Jesus. It's incredible. It's so counterintuitive. It's almost illogical. And yet that's what I think Jesus is saying in this parable and Jesus is saying to us as a church family. Right now, let me read the parable from Mark's gospel. This is in three of the gospels, Mark, Matthew and Luke. I'm reading from Mark. So Mark chapter 4, it's going to be on the screen. If you've got quick fingers, you can open your smartphone and check your Facebook and then get on the Uversion app. Just post cracking message today. Just write that and then we'll go on. it. It's a joke. If you're visiting, that's a joke. I'm not an egomaniac, I hope. Anyway, Mark chapter 4. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. I am reading the same translation, aren't I? Yes, good. He taught them many things in parables and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came out and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said what he often said at the end of a parable, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And most of the people who heard that just heard that parable. And they're like, yeah, great. Thanks for the gardening tip, Jesus. Can you say something more spiritual? Before we get in, this is one of the few parables, might be the only one that Jesus explains to his disciples later. But before we get to his explanation, which I'm really thankful for because it helps the preaching job a lot, let's make some observations about what's going on here, the context in which Jesus shares this parable. The first thing to note is the crowd was so large that Jesus had to get into a boat to see them all. The crowd was so large. It's a huge crowd. So what this isn't, this parable, what this is not is a training, inspirational training to go out and share your faith. I've heard people preach this parable where they've said, so when you go and share your faith with your friends, you've got a one in four chance of them coming to faith. So go and do it. Go and do it with that hope in your heart. 25% of your friends will come to faith if you share the gospel with them. I don't think that's what Jesus has in His mind. If that were the case, I reckon He would have gone to His close disciples and He would have just been doing it. He says this to a large crowd that had gathered to listen to Him teach. And I reckon if I'm in that crowd When Jesus tells this parable, and I understand it, my cry, the the thing that comes out of my mouth if I'm more Pentecostal than Baptist, is tell me how to be good soil then. I don't want to be those other soils. I want to be good soil. How do I make my heart good soil? I'm not fired up to go and share the seed with others. I'm like, I see you are the sower. You're, you're, you're scattering seed now. I want it to settle in good soil. There's something about you, Jesus, that is truth. There's something about you that is powerful. And if you're saying stuff, I want it to be in good soil of my heart. I don't want it to be in rocky soil. I don't want it to be in hard soil. I don't want it to be choked out by thorns. I want it to be in good soil. It's what Jesus, the response that Jesus is looking for. He's looking for it today. He's looking for it today from us. Make my heart good soil. Make my heart good soil. The second thing that I I would observe about this passage and this parable is I don't think Jesus is talking about the one-time event when the gospel is preached in like an altar call sense. Like at youth group on a Friday night, we say, who wants to put their trust in Jesus for the first time? Every now and again, we do that on a Sunday morning. There's like this one time when you first came to Jesus. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think this is like on the daily Like Jesus is, this is a constant posture that he wants for his people to constantly be like good soil. And the seed that is sown is the Word of God. And so constantly we're hearing it, constantly it's challenging us. And Jesus is looking for hearts that are good soil where it can settle and bear fruit. The third thing I notice about this is the soil is the determinative factor in multiplication, let me say that again because I stumbled through that word I probably will again now because I've set myself up to fail the soil is the determinative factor in multiplication it's not the farmer it's not the seed it's the soil that determines what happens next and the soil as I'll tell you in a sec is your heart it's your heart So as this parable, as I said, it's explained by Jesus. We don't need to wonder about the metaphor because Jesus goes on to explain it. So let me read this to you from verse 14 of that same chapter, Mark 4. Here's Jesus explaining it. The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. That's the hard path. Others like seed sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things comes in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times, what? was sown. And again, if you're sitting there listening to Jesus, your cry, my cry, because I'm attracted to Him, would be, well, I want to be good soil. In that moment, like as I go off into the world, that might be challenged, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. But in that moment, Jesus, I want to be good soil. Is that your response right now? If it is, stick with me. God wants to do something in your heart today. So, Jesus talks about four different types of soil. I want to say that the four different types of soil are the four different types of heart. It's the same thing. The four types of soil equal the four types of heart. And there is the hard heart, the anxious heart, the crowded heart, and the good heart. Let's look at each one. First of all, the hard heart. This is the seed that can't penetrate because the ground is just too hard. It's heard. The, the teaching of Jesus is heard. The Word of God is heard. But there's absolutely no penetration because the heart is hard. This is like me saying to Brooke, I don't need to read a book about gardening. I don't need to go to Bunnings and ask someone about it. I don't need to join a club. It's the last thing I need to do to know how to garden. I know what I'm doing. You just dig a hole, stick a plant in it and water it and it'll grow. I don't, but hear, hear my hardness of heart. I, don't, I can't learn anything. You can't teach me anything. I'm good, thank you very much. This is the hard heart. And before we get too quickly, again, onto thinking about the people that we know, family members, friends we've had for a long time, and we would say, man, they've just got a really hard heart and I'm praying for them, but it's just, I just can't. Like I know people in my family like this. There's just, they're too hard to the gospel. It's never going to take seed. Okay, that's one way to look at this parable and keep praying for those people. But let's take a minute to think about our own heart right now. How hard is your heart to the things of God? Like, do, do, you, do you come to a moment like today going, I know everything I need to know. I've got my theology sorted. It's all squared away. And I'm going to sit this morning in a place of judgment and judge the preacher according to the theology that I've got sorted out. Thank you very much. There's not a heart of Jesus, whatever you want to do today. And I don't care what church it is. If it's a church that loves Jesus, They're not perfect. We're not perfect. No church is perfect. We're going to go and my heart is open to you, Jesus. My heart is not hard. It's open. Things don't have to go through a filter of the stuff you've got figured out before maybe it'll get some penetration into your heart. Our hearts can become so hard. I reckon our hearts become hard in at least three ways. At least three ways. I mean, there's a whole lot of other ways, but at least three ways. The first way our hearts can become hard is through sin. And, habitual sin. and I reckon most of us know what this is like when you do something that you know is not God's best for you. It's not a righteous, pure thing to do. You go and do it and you feel guilt, you feel shame, you go through that whole thing. But then you do it again and what happens? The guilt and the shame starts to diminish a bit. And then you do it again and, it, and then you do it again and then you do it again. And suddenly your heart is hard. There's nothing that can get through because you're stuck in this habitual sin. Habitual sin can harden your heart. It can harden your heart to confessing it because it's so ingrained in you and so hidden and so deep within you that it would be death to confess that sin to someone else. It makes our hearts hard. The, the, second, the second way is pride, and I've kind of hinted at this already. I've arrived, thank you very much. I've arrived at a spirituality and a Christianity that I am happy with, and no one's going to change it. No one's going to shake it. I don't, not even the Holy Spirit can get through to me, thank you very much, because we are sorted. I'm set in my ways. You can't teach me new things. I'm proud of who I am. I don't want to change who I am. I'm, I'm done. I'm good. Thank you very much. I'll come along to church, but you can't teach me anything new, pastor, preacher. Read the Bible. Read it through the lens of my theology. Listen to worship music. Accept what goes through the filter. Reject what doesn't. Hearts can become hard. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have good theology. I'm just saying it should always be with an openness to what God might want to say to us. What he might want to sow in our hearts. This this verse should trouble you if you've got a proud heart. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God is opposing you when you're proud. I don't want God to oppose me. The third way that we can get hard hearts is through disappointment. We expected God to do something a particular way. We prayed for years for it and our, and our expectations that we had of what he would do to date are unmet, are unmet. And what that can do is harden our heart. Well, God either doesn't care or can't do it or doesn't want to do it. Either way, it's completely limited my understanding of who God is. So we start sentences with God can't or God won't. And we've got to be very careful about what we say after we start a sentence like that because if you don't finish it with a good thing, you finish it with your thing, then that shows you've got a hard heart that's become hard through disappointment. What if, it's just a bit of a side note, what if the reward of prayer is not the miracle What if the reward of prayer is communion with God? Is your heart soft to that? We can't ignore either, Satan is at work here. I mean, Jesus says, Satan comes along and picks up the seed that is on that hard path. He, He is quick, Satan is quick to shut the whole Jesus idea down. He's really quick to do it. He's like, okay, I don't mind you hearing it, but I'm going to come along. If I see your heart's heart, I'm going to come and speak, whisper in your ear and tell you all the reasons why you should reject this. He does that. We can't blame him all the time because ultimately it's our choice and we have more freedom than we think. The two mistakes we make with Satan, one is we give him too much airtime. The other mistake is we don't give him enough airtime. But he does come and he does want to stand opposed to the things that God wants to do in your heart. And he just with a whisper sometimes, he goes, yep, no, reject that. That's not. That's not what I want. I'm. I'm good. With each of these hearts, I meant to say before the, the hard heart, the anxious heart, the crowded heart, the good heart, to think about what does Jesus say to each of these hearts. So if your heart is hard, what would Jesus say to you? There's a couple of proverbs that I reckon He would say. These are these are repeated in two different places. So it's like there's something in this if it's said twice. It goes like this in 14.12 and 16.25, these two proverbs. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end leads to death. The proud heart is so sure of what it believes, so sure that this is a good path, but there is a way that appears right, but in the end it leads to death. Jesus told plenty of parables. There's another one he tells, and he tells about selecting the seat at the table when you go to a party, when you go to an event. And the way, I won't go into all that, but in Luke 14, 11, when he sums up the parable, he says this, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And he's talking to religious people, people who had everything figured out. The Pharisees knew every bit of the law. They knew it all. They knew the right way. They knew it to, to the nth degree. They knew every where every dot on every I went and every cross on every T went. They had it all figured out and that caused them to be, Proud. Jesus says, if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Already given to the other one that's in both James and Peter. It's also a quote from a proverb: God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And one other parable that Jesus tells speaks to the proud heart. It's a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector going to pray in the temple. A proud Pharisee and a humble tax collector. And the intro to this parable in Luke's gospel, how Luke tells it, he, he sets it up like this. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. If you have a hard heart, there is something in the hard heart that justifies self. And here's this parable that Jesus tells to you, to me. And it finishes with the penitent, humble tax collector beating his chest, saying, God, have mercy on me. I know my sin. I know my offence to you. Have mercy on me. And then there's the proud Pharisee saying, thank you that I am so awesome. I mean, that is just the most ridiculous prayer ever. Thank you that I am so awesome. Jesus says, which one went home justified? It was the tax collector. The humble heart God was giving grace to but he was opposing the hard heart. Is your heart hard this morning? Jesus wants to soften it today. The anxious heart, the anxious heart, this is the seed that fell in rocky places that don't, it didn't penetrate deeply enough into the soil to be strong and to endure the tough conditions that were coming. There, there are plenty of forces opposed to me supplying my family with homegrown vegetables. I talked about these before. There's giant bugs that want to eat everything. There's weeds. There's other beasts that come out at night. I see a big, lush, plump tomato, and the next, next morning it's gone, thanks to whatever crazy, rabid beast came and decided they were going to eat. It's probably a cute little possum, but death to all possums. Not really. I wiped that from the audio as well. I'm just saying to get myself in trouble. I get stressed about it. I get anxious about it, but I don't do anything about it. I just want to ignore it and pretend it's not happening. I want to walk away. And this is like the anxious heart. Hey, is it too soon to say how many hearts were gripped by fear and anxiety during the pandemic? Is it too soon to start talking about this? When the pandemic happened and then when vaccinations came out, how my, and I'm not talking about, I'm not advocating for either side of the fence here because I saw fear and anxiety in my own heart and I saw fear and anxiety in the hearts no matter where you fell in the debate. Remember Channel 7, that Channel 7 ad? We'll get through this together. It was so wrong. Thanks Channel 7 for your attempt to unify the nation. Didn't work. There's only one person who can unify a nation. Thank you. Thank you. And he can unify the nations. You know, and, and churches weren't exempt in this, by the way. I mean, anxiety doesn't discriminate against you, depending on your religion. It can, it can get into any heart. And there was a whole lot of frustrations brewing around public gatherings like this, around online services and, and fear and anxiety, no matter what side of the fence you fell. And I don't need to tell you what the fence was. And through 2020 to 2022, anxiety was the most common mental disorder among Australians. One in six people had a significant battle with anxiety on a daily basis, like anxiety, not just of feeling anxious in a moment, but the medical sorry, the mental health issue of constant anxiety. One in six people. Two in five people report feeling anxious regularly. Anxiety is a feeling of worry nervousness or unease about something with an uncertain outcome. And then anxiety as a disorder, is a mental health disorder characterized by feelings of worry, anxiety or fear that are strong enough to interfere with one's daily activities. I'm really aware that even as I'm talking about this, for some, anxiety is starting to rise in your heart. We're not exempt as Christians from fear and anxiety. You know, I think in our country, feel like things are going to get worse for us as followers of Jesus than they have been in the last probably 100 years. It's going to get tougher to follow Jesus. And and that's not a prophetic statement, by the way. That's just, I mean, you don't need to look very hard to see it. It's happening. Something you can sense in the water. We we become, as humans, naturally uneasy about things with a certain outcome. And we don't know what the outcome is going to be for people who follow Jesus in our world into the future. And it might not be this generation, it might be the next generation that it experiences at a whole other level. Here's the deal. The world is scary when you're a Christian. We shouldn't be surprised by this. We have been living in such abnormal conditions in our country for so long. We think it's normal. It's not. For followers of Jesus, the world has always been opposed. Always been opposed. Jesus said this. Jesus said there's stuff happening in the world that will make your hearts fearful, and make you feel anxious, whether that is just a feeling in a moment or something more significant that I don't mean to minimize, by the way. Yet as our hearts grow anxious about what it means and what it looks like to follow Jesus in 2024, I pray this morning that God would minister to our anxious hearts. That Jesus would till the soil and remove the rock from our anxious hearts. If I embrace, this is, where, this is sometimes where anxiety comes from, if I embrace this truth about Jesus, whatever truth that is, it would mean some kind of death in my life. When the sun comes up and I go out and try to live this way in the world, I'm too fearful of what, that, what the implications are, what the outcomes are gonna be. I'm too uncertain about it. So the root has not gone deep enough to create a plant that survives the, the blaring sun. So there's two options for us who are anxious. We need to bunker down in the church in the safety of the greenhouse and try and make the bubble of the greenhouse as big as we can, only mixing with other Christians as much as we can, only only being around the church stuff as much as we can. Bunker down, do our best until Jesus comes back or until we die. Or the other option in our anxiety and fear is to go out and let the sun wither us and become so much like the world that there's no distinction between us and them. Jesus doesn't want either of these. Neither of these is faithful to following Jesus who said, I came into the world to love the world, to be in the world, to save the world. And he said to his disciples and he says to us, as I was sent, so I am sending you. What does Jesus say to the anxious heart? And again, I don't mean to minimize those who really struggle with anxiety. But I have been praying that these words would cut deep into your heart today. And as we move later into a time of ministry, that as you go for prayer, the Holy Spirit would minister to your anxious heart. Jesus says in John 16, 33, these are the words from your King, who has all authority on heaven and on earth. I have told you these things so that, you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I think this next verse is a verse for our generation and particularly for our young generation who are struggling with anxiety like no other generation before it. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. And this bit, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Then there's the crowded heart, the crowded heart. And this is the seed that's sown among thorns. And these thorns represent, according to Jesus, other loves, other desires that compete for love with Jesus. Not giving enough space for the gospel to take seed and the word of God to take seed and to flourish in our lives. In my greed and my way over the top optimism for a lush garden, I overcrowd the garden bed. I do it every time. Even as I'm doing it, I'm telling to myself, you are overcrowding it again. There's another voice saying, I don't care. I want more vegetables. Every single time I've done it, I've had about 10 attempts. Every time I overcrowd the garden bed. Or I put them in pots that are too small because I want more. There's more seeds in the packet. I've got to plant them all. And when I do this, these seeds, they just have little to no chance of flourishing of giving me an abundant harvest. This is like the crowded heart. This is like the crowded heart. We're greedy for the good things in life. We're greedy for all the good things the world has to offer us. And at best, Jesus gets a little bit of our heart, but the rest goes to everything else. It's almost like we're Hindu. We worship many gods. Jesus is just one of them. There is so much out there. Man, you know, and I think it's really difficult for us in the West, and I'm speaking from experience here. There's so much out there competing for the affection of our hearts. There's, our whole economy is based on this. I talked about this last week. Our whole economy is based on putting stuff in front of us to capture our hearts so that we will give our hearts to that thing and then pull out our wallet and give the person who's offering it to us as much money as they're asking for. There is so much out there that competes for the garden bed of your heart. And at best, for, my, for, for a lot of us, there's a little space marked in our heart that says Jesus, but there's a little subtitle that says, Security for the Next Life. i got Jesus. i got my ticket to heaven. But now, I'm going to be into everything. And it may not look that blunt to you. Like, you may have given a big check to the Christmas appeal last year, but every other dollar you have, that's yours. That's yours to spend on whatever you want that's yours to put other seeds in the garden that, that capture your heart and get a hold of your attention and your affection, that get a grip on you and say, if you have this, you will be happy. I wonder if this might be one of the most common states of our hearts in our day, in our cultural moment, that Jesus is just one seed among many. Jesus is one little plant Among many, What's interesting about this particular heart is that Jesus makes no comment about the quality of the soil. The first soil was hard, the next soil was rocky. Jesus doesn't say this soil was bad, this was good soil. Let me tell you, your heart is good soil for the things that the world wants to throw at you, for them to take a grip and for them to put plants in there that flourish. Every human heart, when it comes to worship, is actually really rich soil. Worship is something that every human is made to do, to get something that captures our affection and our attention, that we sacrifice for, that we give to, that we say, if I have this, then I have everything I need. And every human heart is worshipping something or more than one thing. And maybe in the church in our day, it's things other than or as well as Jesus. What does Jesus then say to the crowded heart? There's a rich young ruler that comes up to Jesus and he says, I've got all my theology sorted. I'm living my best life, both materially and and spiritually. I'm I'm doing all the stuff. Jesus challenged him about a few of the things. He said, I've been doing them since I was a boy. And then Jesus says this back to him. This is what Jesus says to the crowded heart because this was a man whose heart was crowded. If you want to be perfect go, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, then come follow me. Jesus is saying to continue the horticultural metaphor, weed out the other things that are competing in your heart. Just pull them out, get rid of them and then have me and me alone. Follow me and you'll have a treasure in heaven that you never, could never dream of. The rich young ruler doesn't go, okay, sweet, let me just go sort that out. The rich young ruler goes away sad because he had a lot of stuff that he wasn't willing to give up. He wasn't willing to have his heart weeded by the gardener. This is what Jesus says to the crowded heart. In Luke 12, 15, he says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And this is after another parable about a man who had so much stuff, he you didn't know what to do with it all, so he built bigger barns to contain more of his stuff. And, and God says to him, you fool, tonight your life will be taken from you. And then what? It's all for nothing. If you want to invest in something good and lasting, be rich toward God. Make him the sole focus of all your affection and all your attention. Creating your heart with an abundance of possessions is not the abundant life that Jesus wants you to have. Jesus' offer is for an abundant life apart from anything that you can own or have on earth. It's a non-contextual, all contextual, sorry, abundance that Jesus wants to give you. I love this quote from James K.A. Smith. He wrote a book called You Are What You Love and that title is a challenge. You Are What You Love. He says this, Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and our longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all. That's what Jesus wants for you and he wants it for you because it means abundant life. It means being fully human. Giving your heart to Jesus and saying, make me good soil and let the words of your truth, the words of your gospel take deep root in me. That's the pathway that leads to abundant life. There's nothing else. That's it. Finally, there's the good heart. There's a good heart where there was multiplication 30, 60, 100 times over. And this was so elusive for me in my garden. But it's fully attainable in Jesus. Fully attainable in Jesus. 30, 60, 100 times. I did a little bit of research, not a whole lot, because it was gardening. And I don't like to do a whole lot of research when it comes to gardening, as I've already confessed. But like a tenfold, a tenfold multiplication for a farmer would have been a good thing. Like that's, a, that's, a, that's a good standard, okay? That's what we want. Jesus is saying, if you have a good heart, the Word of God sown into the good heart will multiply 30, 60, hundred times over. But here's what, I'm at pains. If I'm striving to do anything, it's that you would understand this and I would understand this myself. The path to good soil, the way we create good soil is not to strive within ourselves to be good soil. I'm gonna tend my own heart to make it good soil so then I can open myself up to Jesus. No, the way to have good soil is to Relax into Jesus. Soil doesn't become good through forcing and striving, but nice, rich, abundant soil where the seed, and if you think of the seed as the words, the works and the ways of Jesus, the good soil where the root takes deep and abiding ground within us producing an abundant harvest the way to get this soil is when that soil is relaxed relaxed into Jesus you know if you're here a few weeks ago and we talked about retreat coming up and how retreat is the last three days of our first six years and and Matt told me that the first day after retreat is the first day of the seventh year And God's instruction about the earth He had created was for a year after, the seventh year, let the soil rest. Let the soil relax. Because if you let it rest and relax, it's gonna be more fruitful. And just like that, here, Jesus saying to us today, this isn't about striving. This isn't about working hard to multiply the message of Jesus. This isn't working hard to go and grab our seed and scatter it wherever we can. It's about relaxing into Jesus, taking our hands off the wheel and allowing Him to work on our hearts. What Jesus says to the good heart is, remain in me, abide in me. This is the relaxed verse for us, Gateway Redlands in 2024, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace and I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. He says in John 15 verses four to eight, live in me, make your home in me and just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you are joined to me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. When you are joined with me and I with you, the relation intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't produce a thing. Anyone who separates from me is dead wood gathered up and thrown on the bonfire. But if you make yourselves at home with me and my words are at home in you, you can be sure that whatever you ask will be listened to and acted upon. This is how my Father shows who He is when you produce grapes, when you mature as my disciples. My heart for our church, for this family, is that this would be a lived reality for us that we would be remaining in Jesus. 21 days of prayer is coming up, coincides with Lent. Lent started on Wednesday It's in the lead up to Easter. This is a time of like purging, a time of allowing God to rip out the stuff that is holding us back from Him and from His abundant life. Jump into 21 days of prayer, pray with us. But between you and Jesus, pray into the hardness of your heart, the anxiety of your heart, the crowdedness of your heart.